Houston, we have a problem. I've always wanted to say that. <laughs> but thank God that we also have a solution. Amen? We also have a solution. Friends, we live at a time in Earth's history when it's not business as usual. It's not business as usual. And I want to, this morning, open up a conversation. Some, some say that it's a long overdue conversation. It's not between me and you. It's between your heart and God's heart. And as Sharon has just shared, it's around the question of, is it possible? Is it possible to be financially secure without becoming spiritually bankrupt? I want to start with my testimony. My testimony, like any of yours, or like many of yours, begins not just with myself, my, but also with my family, my extended family. There's a photograph of my family in 1971. I'm the little guy, the smallest one. My sister Kathy beside me and my mum and dad, Delphine and Ray Archer. 1971. But that's jumping ahead of the story. Let's go back to when my dad, up there on the right, was 14 years old. From birth through to 14 years of age, my father had to attend church at least eight times a week. In a busy week, it was 11 times a week. They weren't Seventh-day Adventists, but he had to go to church between eight and 11 times a week. One of his jobs as a child, once he reached his teenage years, was to be the homebrew kid. That meant that he was the, the member of the extended family who had to make all of the beer for his own parents, for the uncles and aunts and everybody else. And of course, being the specialist beer maker in the family, he drank more than he should. And so he had some challenges. He hated church, he hated God, and he wanted to get away from his family. He tried to not attend church, he played with his parents, he tried to disappear when it was time to go to church every day of the week, but he kept getting dragged into church. And so he thought the only solution, there's only one solution to me to not have to come to church next week or, or tomorrow is if the church doesn't exist. And he became what we would call a dynamite church planter. He went to his uncle's farm and he got some gelignite, it's like dynamite, and some fuses, and at 14 years of age, having sat there in church and looked at the structure of the building so many times, he knew exactly where to place the gelignite and the fuses so that he could run in one door, run around, light every fuse, and then run out the back door before that church was planted. He went to school that day, he, he took the gelignite home, he hid it at home, he went to school and he told one of his friends, tonight I'm going to blow up my church. Well, if anybody else had said that, other than Ray Archer, the friend would have just gone, oh yeah, whatever, yeah, good one. <laughs> but because it was Ray Archer, a young guy who had got the cuts on average every day from grades eight through to grade 10, the friend knew that my dad was serious. And so he told the principal and the principal told the police and the police came and took my dad away. They said, son, what's the problem? And he explained to them that he had to go to church between eight and 11 times a week. And they said, okay, where's the gelignite? And so 
they were probably not expecting that it was real, but Dad took them home and gave them the gelignite. And they then went and took his parents away. They didn't take them far, but they showed them the gelignite and they said, do you realize that your son Raymond was going to blow up the church tonight? And they had no idea. And they, the police said, look, you should probably back off on the religion thing a bit, which they did, but Dad had already had enough, and soon after, he left home. Well, he went to live with his older brother, and they got into all sorts of mischief. In fact, it wasn't long before his older brother was in jail for counterfeiting banknotes. Um, he didn't have a license like your government to just print them. And uh, so, so he had to counterfeit them on his own sort of printing system. And so he, Dad got into more trouble, drinking too much again, getting, getting into trouble. Ended up sort of living on and off the streets. Met my mother. Uh, in, in the process, was able to do a trade in refrigeration mechanics. And uh, met mum, had my sister and myself as two young babies in the house. The uh, refrigeration mechanics business, while he was doing that, well, he started a small business on his 21st birthday. He said, on, on my 21st birthday, I want to be self-employed. And so he did that right on his 21st birthday. And he had a welder. And a friend of his said, can you weld for me a bench press machine? Now, that's a piece of gymnasium equipment for pushing the weights off your chest. And so he's, he welded it up for his friend, and he sold it to his friend, and he made a small profit. And he thought, hey, that's cool. And so he made another one, and he sold it, and another, and he sold it. And he started another business called Archer Bodybuilding Equipment. And this was in the late 1960s when the uh, what would you call it, the, the pumping iron trend was beginning. Bodybuilding was happening in California and in Australia and different places. And so dad then decided with mum, they said, hey, we, we're making this equipment and so we can get it cheap. Why don't we open a gymnasium, a bodybuilding center? And so they did. And before you know it, they had a thousand members. And so they opened another one and got another thousand members. And they thought, hey, we've got all these people coming in for, the, for gym. Why don't we open a health food store and then we can sell them all the protein drinks and everything else that they need to keep healthy. By the age of 24, mum and dad had started and were running themselves five businesses. They were what we would now call serial entrepreneurs. They would see an opportunity and they would jump at it. They were very successful, but their marriage was absolutely hell. Their marriage was completely shot. God was not in the system. They were working 18 hours a day, my sister Kathy and I were being babysat quite a lot because mum and dad were out a lot. And they had to make a decision in 1974 between business and marriage. And I thank God that they chose marriage. We moved out to the, what we call the bush. You might call it the forest or the wilds or, I don't know, some place hidden, hidden away out in the state somewhere up in the mountains. And we bought a little block of land in 1974. It was only 33 acres on one side was a 1,500-acre cattle property with rolling hills and lots of forest, and on the other side was two, a 2,000-acre cattle property. And we lived there between those two, and we tried to be self-sufficient. Mum and Dad had sold all of the businesses except the health food store. We tried to grow our own food. There was no electricity. There was no running water. We were living in a shed that was 8 foot wide and 14 feet long out in the middle of nowhere. We became hippies. We were a little bit late, it was the 70s, I know, but that should have been done in the 60s, but we were, we were busy in the 60s. And so we became hippies with the long hair and the long beard for dad and 
and barefoot, and we didn't wear a lot of clothes uh, because we didn't have a washing machine, and we didn't have neighbours. And of course, the only reason we wear clothes is because we have neighbours. And so we, we had the freedom, and that's how I grew up, a very, a very carefree sort of lifestyle. And my... I, in fact, on that, I, I still remember one day walking down to the dam where we used to bathe. Uh, and of course, no clothes, no towels. Well, you don't need a towel. You walk down to the dam, to the pond. You wash yourself off and you walk back up to your little shed. And by the time you get back to the shed, you're dry and you don't have to wash towels or anything. So it was all good. And I still remember walking down there and, and five years old. And we met the neighbor on his horse checking his cattle. And I still remember in my, five, in my little five-year-old mind standing there looking up at the neighbour, talking to him, uh, mum and dad talking to him about the weather or his cattle or something and thinking, Julian, there's something wrong with this picture. <laughs> it reminds me of the, the little girl and her dad who were riding on their bicycle somewhere, I don't, I'm not sure where it was, and dad was out trying to show his little girl a lot of nature and they were riding along there on their bikes and the father saw a sign that said naturalist camp. And he thought, cool, we'll go for a ride down there and we'll see some more nature. There's obviously a, a scenic spot down there. And so as they're riding down the road, coming the other way are three or four adults on their bicycles and they've got absolutely no clothes on. It was a naturalist, naturalist camp, all right? It was a nudist camp. And as the, the people go past going the other way and they're gone, the dad stops his bike and stops the little girl and says, Emily, Emily, did you notice anything wrong with those people? And she said, yes, Daddy, they weren't wearing their helmets. <laughs> And that's a little bit like I felt as a five-year-old standing there looking at this guy going, there's something wrong here, but I don't, I don't know what it is. And so life went on, and we had a, a health food store in, in Ipswich that mum and dad used to go to one at a time to work in the health food store. And every day in that health food store, a man would come in. His name was Harry Walker. Now, Harry was an engineer in the railways, and Harry would ask mum and dad how are the kids, how's the house building going, because by this time dad was building a house, in fact he was building a house out of sandstone and logs, it took him seven years, he cut a lot of the stone out of the ground himself, and Harry would, would build this relationship, now looking back on what Harry was doing, today we would call it friendship evangelism, we had no idea what Harry was doing, we just thought he was buying a loaf of bread every day, and we couldn't work out what he was doing with the bread, because Harry didn't have any kids, it was just him and his wife Dot at home, but Harry was building relationship through those loaves of bread. And one day Harry came into the shop and he, he said to my dad, Ray, he said, Ray, there's a guy coming to town and he's going to tell us about how the Egyptians built the pyramids out of stone. Would you like to come along? Because I know you're building a house out of stone. And dad went, that sounds cool, Harry, I'm going to come. And so we piled into our, into our old pickup and we drove down to town there every night for this program to try and learn about how the Egyptians built the pyramids out of stone. Well, we never actually worked out how to do that, but we learned some wonderful people. And then we went, went back to the bush. Mum and Dad kept going to the health food store, and Harry kept buying his loaf of bread every day. One day, Harry came in, and he, my mother was in the store, and he said, Delphine, there's somebody coming to town, and they're going to be talking about vegetarian cooking. Would you like to come along to learn how to do it? Well... Mum thought, yeah, I suppose, we're, not, we're certainly not vegetarians, but I'll talk to Ray. So she went home and explained it to Dad, and, and Dad said, vegetarians? Why? I mean, I'm a bodybuilder, why? What? why? No, we've got no interest in that. And Mum said, but Ray, a lot of our customers are vegetarians, and maybe we could sell more stuff if we knew how to cook vegetarian food. 
sign me up. Dad just wanted to know, well, yeah, where do, where do we go? So we, we all piled in the pickup again and we drove down there to the town of Ipswich and we learned how to cook vegetarian food and we went back to the bush and Harry kept coming in and buying a loaf of bread every day. Praise God for people like Harry. One day Harry came in and he said to Dad, he said, Ray, would you like to go to church? Well, Harry didn't know all of Dad's background and that he'd already been to church enough for most of us will go in our entire lifetime. And Dad would normally say, not a chance, you know, I'm... But Harry was his friend. And he thought, I've got to get a better excuse. And so he said, ah, that's it, that's it. Harry, what day do you go to church? Because he knew Harry would go to church on Sunday, and Sunday was the only day that we never drove from out in the country all the way into the city. And uh, so he thought he's safe there. And Harry said, uh, Saturday mornings. And Dad went, ah. Because Saturday mornings were the only morning that we all went to town, because Saturday morning was when we went to buy our groceries. And so sure enough, the next Saturday morning, there we are all down in town, buying all of our groceries and driving up to the Ipswich Seventh-day Adventist Church. We parked outside and we had a problem. You see, we... Our old pickup was really old and it, the doors didn't lock and we had a week's worth of groceries in the back of the pickup. And we thought, well, what are we going to do with the groceries? And we thought, that's it, we'll take them into church. So we picked up all of our groceries and the only cartons that we had to pack groceries into were beer cartons. 4X beer, in Australia we spell beer, well, where I come from it's spelled XXXX because we can't spell beer. And so we had these 4X beer cartons and we walked into church Mum, Dad, Kathy and myself carrying these cartons. We put them under the back seats and then we went around and we sat on those seats to look after them because we weren't sure about some of the people. <laughs> but, you know, the interesting thing was that the same people, and this was a curious thing, the same people who had an interest in Egypt also had an interest in vegetarian cooking because we saw them at the same two programs. And when we turned up at church, those same people were there <laughs> in, in a city the size of Ipswich. This is a curious thing. So we sat there. Dad's long beard, my long hair, Mum and Kath wearing hippie clothes, bare feet, smelling different. Dad was still smoking a bit, drinking too much. And I give you all of those details because Ipswich Seventh-day Adventist Church never said anything to us about any of it. They just loved us. They loved us into Christ. And of course, when we had questions about some of those things, we had Harry our friend Harry. Hey, Harry, why don't people do this? Why don't they eat this? Why don't they drink this way? Why, what, 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 what? And Harry would lovingly share us those answers. Well, we went back into business, and I won't go into a lot of the details about business because I know you guys are business people and you, you've experienced it all, the stresses and challenges of it. You've experienced the miracles of God leading. We, we started a small fruit and nut tree nursery. God led us through mum and dad's faith. They They'd learned, about e they'd learned about Jesus through Egypt, and so Dad just wanted to tell everybody about Egypt, and so he jumped on a plane and flew over to Egypt and took photos of the pyramids and came back and rented the local hall and put an ad in the paper and said, come along and learn about Egypt. And people came and people were baptized. And he moved to the next town, and we, we ran the programs there, and people were baptized. And the next town and the next town. We finally ran out of towns, and it was all self-supporting through our little fruit and nut tree nursery at the time. And God led us to keep one of those, we had 214 varieties of fruit and nut trees in this little business. And God led us to keep one of those trees, it was the olive tree. And we went out on the road doing evangelism, we kept the olive trees and the olive trees then funded our evangelism uh, from that point onwards. In fact, God led us 
led mum and dad when they were on their knees going through that catalogue trying to work out which one of the 214 plants to keep. He led them to the olive trees. And the olive tree business, within four years of us starting it, became the largest olive tree nursery in the world. Dad then led, sorry, God then led dad and mum, uh, primarily dad, into another business called Olive Leaf Extract, which is a herbal medicine. Uh, business and we had 500,000 olive trees. There may be some pictures here of an olive tree and uh, uh, they'll come up when they're ready. Uh, and in 2007 at the beginning of the global financial crisis, I saw it down here, at, in, in 2007 at, in the global financial crisis we I sold that business, the last of 12 businesses for mum and dad, and again went into full-time ministries. Mum and dad, uh, we have a family foundation and they got involved with that. Dad got involved with breeding butterflies as a way of finding people for, for Bible studies, and uh, I am involved in a ministry called Faith Versus Finance. We saw God's blessing in those ministries, ministries and, the, and businesses so much but as those businesses were blessed and those hockey stick graphs went up rapidly, the profits went up fast, I want to ask you, what impact do you think that had on my relationship with Jesus Christ? As we saw God leading in those businesses, what impact did that have on my relationship with Jesus Christ? Did it go up or did it go down? You would think that surely with God leading in so many different ways and, and us seeing the miracles in those businesses and using the profits of those businesses to support God's work around the world, that my personal relationship with Jesus Christ would have got stronger. But it didn't. It actually got weaker. Just having some trouble with the clicker here, guys. We've got no movement in that slide. So I'll, let me tell you what happened in my life in those years of business. Okay, we're back on track. In those years of business, I became proud. Number one, I became proud. I became proud because God had given me a business to operate, to run, that was bigger than any of my friends had. Regardless of the fact that the prophets were going into God's work primarily, I became proud. I became a Pharisee. I became a Pharisee because in God's word, it tells me, Julian, if you obey me, I will bless you. And I was being blessed more than any of my friends. And therefore, I must have been being more obedient than any of my friends. Can you see the Pharisee coming through? And I became self-reliant. Subconsciously, I was thinking, you know, God's blessed me so much that I don't need him anymore. Of course, I would never say that. I was an elder at church, I was taking sermons, we were supporting projects around the world. On the outside, everything looked great. But on the inside, I knew I had a problem. I had let God's blessings become a curse in my life. I started to focus on the gifts more than on the giver. A few years ago, I was trekking in the Himalayas with my sons and I came across this quote by Mahatma Gandhi, which says that the fact is the moment financial stability is assured, spiritual bankruptcy is also assured. Ouch. 
For 15 years prior to reading, to that quote, reading that quote, I had worked very hard to become financially stable and had succeeded beyond my wildest dreams. But in my heart, where nobody else saw, not the person sitting beside me at ASI, not the person sitting beside me on the plane going off on a mission trip, not the person listening to my Sabbath school lesson, where nobody else saw, I knew that I was losing my first love with Jesus Christ. I knew that money had its claws on me and I was in trouble. I began to realize that when I was abundantly blessed, I was actually in the most spiritually dangerous stage of my life. And I desperately needed to find out how to stop God's blessings from becoming curses. Which brings us to the question, is it possible to be financially stable, financially secure, without becoming spiritually bankrupt? And I thank God that the answer is yes. We can. But there's conditions attached. Let's turn in our Bibles to Matthew 6. Matthew 6, 19 to 24. It's Jesus speaking. It's the middle of the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6, 19 to 24. And in Matthew 6, 19, we read this. Jesus speaking, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth. Is that a suggestion or a command? It's a command, isn't it? Do not, Julian, Julian, do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. For where your treasure is, there your what? There your heart will be also. Let's skip down a couple of verses to verse 24. Again, it's speaking to me, it's speaking to you, Julian, put your name in there. No one. How many people? No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or else he will be loyal to the one and despise the other. Julian, you can't serve God and money. Yes, I can, Lord. Yes, I can. What I'm doing is I'm, I'm working really hard in business, and I know that's taking like 60, 70 hours a week, and it's taking a lot of my family time, and I know I don't have enough time to spend with you in the morning sometimes, but I'm working really hard in business, and it's your business, and you know I'm doing it for you and because we're giving lots of money into your work, and the gospel's going to all the world because we're supporting it, and, and, and I'm, that's how I'm serving you and money. Julian, you can't do it. Your heart can't do it. You either love me and serve me, or you love money and serve money. Look at your calendar, Julian. Who do you love? Look at your bank account, Julian. Who do you love? You can't serve both of us. Right in the middle between those verses, I skipped a couple of verses, 22 and 23, where he talks about the lamp of the body is the eye. And I couldn't work out why he would talk about our eyes in the middle of a section on treasures on heaven and earth and money. And I thought, well, maybe it's because our, with our eyes we covet. And I thought, yeah, that's it. We, we covet things. That's why it was in there. But then I thought of something else. As I looked at my own life and the challenge that, those, that this passages, these passages brought to me, I realized that I had one eye on my heavenly treasures and the other eye on my earthly treasures, and I was a cross-eyed Christian. And I was wondering why, when I tried to follow Jesus, that I was stumbling because I couldn't see clearly. I was a cross-eyed Christian. One eye on heaven and one eye on earth. The problem that I faced was this. The teeter-totter problem, seesaw problem. I don't know what you call it in, in your country where you're from. 
as my finances went up, my faith went down. When my finances went down, my faith went up. Please, Lord, help me. I need money. We've got bills to pay here. It's your business, you know. But when he blessed me, I didn't have enough time for him again. The teeter-totter principle. Faith versus finance. Ellen White, in the book Evangelism, page 561, says this. In the history of men, we learn how dangerous is prosperity. Prayers are often requested for men and women in affliction, and this is as it should be. But the most earnest prayers should be solicited for those who are placed in a prosperous position. These men, these women, are in the greatest danger of losing the soul. Friends, when a person prospers, either God gains a partner or the person loses their soul. It's that simple. We're going to talk more about this in the, in the seminar following, but I'm going to, I'm going to give you the, the crux of the message right now. And that is that as our blessings go up, our knees must go down. As our blessings go up, whether they are material blessings, whether they are talents, whether it's education, whether it's position or status, whatever it is, as those blessings go up, our knees must go down, and if they don't, we are not going to heaven. It's serious, friends. It's serious. The more our blessings go up, the more our knees must go down. Otherwise, we're fooling ourselves in our relationship with Christ. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks at the heart. The Gallup poll, that is an international uh, secular research agency, on, on one of their surveys done in, I think this one was done in about 175 countries, they asked this question, is religion an important part of your daily life? It was a yes-no scenario. And you can see that in nations where the annual per capita, per person income was between zero and 2,000 US dollars, 95% of the population said, yes, religion is important in my everyday life. But when the income got to $25,000 a year or more on average per person in that nation, less than half of the people were still interested in religion on a daily basis. Teeter-totter, friends. Up and down. Faith versus finance. This isn't something that just affects individuals. This is something that affects congregations. This is something that affects entire nations. Some of you will know of the group Credit Suisse, a Swiss financial services company. They do a lot of research around the world as well, and in fact, every year they put out what's called the Global Wealth Data Book. And I track this book every year, and I look at a copy of it, you can see it for free online. They survey around 200 nations, not surveying the people by phone survey, but looking at all of the government data on wealth and finance and investments and everything in those nations. And one of the things that they identify is the average wealth level of adults in that nation for more than 200 nations around the world. Can anybody guess for me which nation has the richest adults? Not, not the biggest GDP or some of these other measures, but just the richest private wealth adults as on average. Any guesses? Haven't heard it yet? No? Switzerland. I heard it down here somewhere. Yeah. Switzerland. Correct. Switzerland, the Swiss adults are the richest in the world. 
Let's have a look at some of the data. There we go, Switzerland, number one. Iceland, number two. Australia, number three. United States, number four. Bermuda, Greenland, Luxembourg, Norway, New Zealand, UK. The, the list changes each year slightly, but there's, uh, the top 15 nations sort of take their ranks in the, in the top overall. But look at the column on the right-hand side for those top 10 nations. The percentage who answered, no, religion is not important in my everyday life. And compare it with the percentage that answered no in the poorer countries at the bottom. There it is again, Credit Suisse. It's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man, for a rich nation to get into heaven. When God blesses us, we tend to walk away from him. And some of you will have noticed something interesting about those top 10 nations. And that is that those top 10 nations were all founded on which religion? Yeah, most of them were founded on Christian principles. Our laws were built on God's word and God blessed us because of it. And like the children of Israel, when they walked over the Jordan River to the other side and lived in homes that they didn't build and cities they didn't build and ate from vineyards and olive groves that they didn't plant and drank from wells that they didn't dig, what was Moses warning to them before they crossed over? He said, that's what's going to happen to you. When you get over the other side, you're going to be blessed billionaires. But do not forget the Lord your God. And what did they do? In the midst of the luxury, they walked away from God. It's not a modern problem. Well, it is a modern problem, but it's been around for a long time. John Wesley, founder of the Methodist Church, a man of God, said this in 1789. He said that wherever true Christianity spreads, it must cause diligence, hard work, and frugality, careful spending, which in the natural course of things must create riches. And riches naturally create pride, love of the world, and every temper that is destructive of Christianity. Friends, I've seen that in my life. I've seen it in the life of my nation. It's true. Wherever true Christianity spreads, it must cause diligence and frugality, which in the natural course of things creates riches. And riches naturally create pride, love of the world, and every temper that is destructive of true Christianity. It's a dangerous cycle. I asked a friend of mine to illustrate for me, to do a drawing that illustrated what the inside of my heart looked like in those years when I was living as a cross-eyed Christian. In Revelation 3, Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock, the door of my heart, the door of your heart. But what I had done is I had taken the blessings that God had given me. And by the way, we didn't own all of these blessings. We sold the Eiffel Tower many years ago. But the, the, the things in the picture represent things that might be in your life that were in my life. It could be sport, it could be travel, it could be education, it could be preaching ability, it could be music. It could be a screen time. It could be a collection of something that you just love to collect. But it's getting between you and the door of your heart. It's getting between you and your relationship with Jesus Christ. It's taking your time, your money, your energy, your focus, your attention, and drawing you away from the time, the urgency of the time in which we live. And that's what my friend drew for me. Billy Sunday, the American evangelist, said that many a man is going to slip into hell 
with his hand on the doorknob of heaven. Maybe there's something in there that you see in your life that you really need to talk to God about in a heart-to-heart conversation. In the Review and Herald, November 2, 1886, says the true witness, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. The heavenly guest is standing at your door. While you are piling up obstructions to bar his entrance. Friends, I had never read this when my friend drew this picture. This was just my experience. And somebody sent this to me a couple of years ago and I was in tears when I read it. Jesus is knocking through the prosperity he gives you. He loads you with blessings to test your fidelity that they may flow out from you to others. Will you permit your selfishness to triumph? Will you squander God's talents and lose your soul through idolatrous love of the blessings that he has given? In Luke 16, verses 13, 14, and 15, we read Jesus again saying, you can't serve God and money. And in verse 15 it says, but the Pharisees who loved money were sneering at him. And what did Jesus say to them? Man looks at the outward appearance, but God looks at the heart. And he said, what is wonderful in your eyes is an abomination in the eyes of God. God looks at the heart. In Ezekiel 14 verse 3, we have a similar problem. In fact, if you've got your Bibles, turn there very quickly. Ezekiel 14 verse 3, remember Ezekiel was this reluctant prophet who was sent out, and before he went, God already told him that the people aren't going to listen to what you have to say. Imagine that. A life calling where God says, go out into your life calling. You'll basically be of no effect, but you need to go. (laughs) Man, Ezekiel went out, and in chapter 14, verse 1, let's start there. Now, some of the elders of Israel came to me, came to Ezekiel, and sat before me. And the word of the Lord came to me, saying, Son of man, these men have set up their idols in their hearts and put before them that which causes them to stumble. Ouch. Idols in my heart put before me things that are causing me to stumble? So what was the solution? What was the solution to my faith versus finance battle? Friends, I had to have a heart attack. I had to have a heart attack. You see, the heart that I was born with is a selfish heart. The only way that I could clear all this stuff out of my heart wasn't through trying to daily stop looking at the advertising for it and focusing, not focusing on it and selling it and all that sort of stuff. No, what I needed was found in Ezekiel 36. And that's where I had an epiphany. One morning as I was battling this faith versus finance battle, I was doing my morning worship I came across Ezekiel 36, verses 25 to 27. I'm going to share what happened to you there, what happened to me uh, in that time. One morning, my son came home from school. He was 14 years of age. And he stood in front of me, and he, he said that afternoon, he said, Dad, if I stand here like this, can I turn over my hand from there to there without twisting my wrist? And I said, no, it's impossible. And he said, no, I can do it. And I said, you can't. He said, I can. (laughs) I said, show me. And he went like this. One, two, three, four, five, six. 
when God puts blessings in our hands, it's the exact same message that he gave to Abraham. I'm going to bless you so that you can be a blessing, so that you can pour it out. I'm going to keep putting them in your hand, but you keep pouring them out. Don't put them in your heart. Pour them out. Pour out those blessings. Let's have a look at Ezekiel 36, 25 to 27. Do this movement with me if you would like. We're going to put put your hand out in front. We're going to go up, across, out, up, down, and out. And we're going to do it as we read this text. Every time I say I will or you will, we're going to move our hands once and we're going to see God do a miracle. He's going to turn us over from our selfish heart that wants to hold on to everything to pouring it out. And let me tell you, let me, or you tell me, how much of it do you do and how much does God do? Let's go. It's God speaking. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you and you shall be clean. I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you. I will take the heart of stone out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes. Which way is your hand facing? How much of it did you do? None. God did it all. He gave you a new heart and then you will keep my judgments and do them. Make a note of that in the margin of your Bible, friends. That's, that's a good one to share. Ezekiel 36. Ellen White steps to Christ, page 18, says, It is impossible for us of ourselves to escape from the pit of sin in which we are sunken. Our hearts are evil and we cannot change them. Education, culture, the exercise of the will, human effort, attending ASI, going to church every week, taking lessons, being an elder at church, going on mission trips, they all have their proper sphere, but here they are powerless. They may produce an outward correctness of behaviour, but they cannot change the heart. There must be a power working from within, a new life from above, before men can be changed from sin to holiness. The power is Christ. You remember in John chapter 3, a man called Nicodemus. Nicodemus was rich, he was powerful, he was respected, and he had lots of other problems too. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, the 70 leaders of Israel religio-political leaders. He was looked up to, he was respected. On the outside, everything looked good, but in his heart, Nicodemus knew that he wasn't saved. And so he went to Jesus at nighttime in the garden, and we remember that Jesus said a number of things to him, and one of them was, Nicodemus, you need to be born again. Nicodemus was a bit confused about what that meant. We understand it much better now, and it's a, it's a, it's a pillar of our faith. It's a foundation of our faith. And he said, Nicodemus, I'll be lifted up. I must be lifted up. And later on in John, he says that when I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. Another beautiful illustration that Christ gave of the message of salvation and of Calvary. But both of those fade into insignificance when you realize that it was to Nicodemus, a one-man audience out there in the dark of the garden, that Jesus said, Nicodemus, God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. Nicodemus was convicted, but he wasn't converted. Nicodemus was convicted. He went back into the Sanhedrin. On two occasions, we have record of him acting to save the life of Christ when the Sanhedrin wanted to kill Jesus. He was convicted, but not converted. Friends, when was Nicodemus converted? At the cross. When he and Joseph of Arimathea came 
to take the body of Christ down. It's the same time the disciples were converted. When I am lifted up, I will draw all men unto me. We're told in the Desire of Ages that Nicodemus died a poor man. If you want to know what he did with his money, read the book of Acts. Nicodemus funded it. He funded the gospel going to all the world. Friends, it's not business as usual today because Nicodemus set us an example that if God is blessing you, it's so that you can take the gospel to the entire world. In Florence, just up from what is my wife and children tell me is the world's best chocolate shop, is a museum with a statue in it, and it's called the Florentine Pieta. Carved by Michelangelo. Michelangelo, incredible artist. It was carved for the top of his own tomb. The Pope came to Michelangelo and said, Michelangelo, you've done so much for us, we want you to carve this for your own tomb. And so he carved it, Nicodemus and the two Marys taking down Jesus off the cross. But the historians, the reason I wanted to see this is because there's a plaque beside it. And the historians say that the face of Nicodemus is the face of Michelangelo. It was a self-portrait. Michelangelo was converted late in life. After a life of much success, finally he gave his heart to Christ in the midst of success. And he wanted everybody to know that if he had been there when his Christ had died, he would have done what Nicodemus did. He never made it to his tomb. There were some faults in the marble and he pushed it aside. But to me, it's a reminder that no matter where we are in life, God is a God of second chances and third chances and 77th chances. My dad used to say to me as I was growing up and he was on fire for Christ, I was a teenager, he'd say, Julian, if you died tonight, could you be sure that you had eternal life? And I didn't know. I want to tell you, for many years I knew that I didn't have eternal life. But through that process in Ezekiel 36, getting a new heart from God, I want to tell you it was the most painful but most beautiful thing that's ever happened to me. A new heart. And now I love that verse, John 5, 13, where John says, Beloved, I write to you, I speak to you, who believe in the name of the Son of God so that you may know that you have eternal life. Not so that you might hope that maybe one day you could if you're good enough or if you give enough. No, he said, I write to you so that you may know that you have now eternal life. Ministry of Healing. The life of the Apostle Paul was a constant conflict with self. Friends, that tells me that when you get the new heart, the battle isn't over. The battle is a daily battle. He said, I die daily. His will and his desires every day conflicted with duty and the will of God. But here's the interesting thing. Instead of following inclination, he did God's will, however crucifying to his nature. In Philippians 1 verse 6, we have that beautiful assurance that he who has begun a good work in you will complete it. And then in Steps to Christ, page 64, don't be discouraged. There are those who have known the pardoning love of Christ and who really desire to be children of God, yet they realize that their character is imperfect, their life faulty, and they are ready to doubt whether their hearts have been renewed by the Holy Spirit. To such I would say, Ellen White writing here, do not draw back in despair. We shall often have to bow down and weep at the feet of Jesus because of our shortcomings and mistakes, but we are not to be discouraged. Friends, we do need to be cross-eyed Christians. Not because we've got one eye on heaven and the other eye on earth, but because we've got both eyes on the cross of Jesus Christ. 
Paul knew it. He said, I determined not to know anything among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. In 2 Timothy chapter 4, the very last letter that we have of Paul's life, in chapter 4 verse 7, there's a verse that to me is really important in this faith versus finance battle. He says, I have fought the good fight, I've finished the race, and I have kept the faith. Friends, I encourage you to keep the faith. It's a battle. It should be faith and finance. It should be faith regardless of finance. But in my life, it's been faith versus finance. And I thank God that whilst we have a problem, God has the solution. I encourage you, as your blessings go up, may your knees go down. I encourage you now to turn to the person beside you. We're going to have a couple of minutes of prayer. And just to pray, to come to the foot of the cross and say, Lord, I want this gift. I want this gift of a new heart. Let's pray together now and I'll finish with prayer at the end. Heavenly Father Lord we thank you that you are a merciful, gracious patient God Lord we thank you that you wait for us afresh every morning to give our lives to you and Lord again this morning we ask that you will take our heart of stone, give us that beautiful heart of flesh fill us with your spirit give us the mind of Jesus Christ and Lord, may we take this fresh new heart that you've given us and may we focus on you. Lord, may we be reminded that it's not business as usual. Please break our stony hearts and draw us to the foot of the cross is my prayer. In Jesus' precious name, amen. This media was produced by Audioverse for ASI. Adventist Layman's Services and Industries. If you would like to learn more about ASI, please visit www.asiministries.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.